So um, by all accounts, we've done the, the necessary spade work um, in, in this text in order to move forward now. So we are going to, for the first time in a few weeks, make some progress in the passage. We are going to cover all the way through verse 7. Uh, because we should now, uh, as we um, add what we've done the last few weeks together regarding the fall of Satan and, and how he appeared here in the garden, we should have some sense now to be able to, with our own minds, though, how he kind of was introduced here, and then now we can move forward with what he does here in the passage. So just to kind of once again move forward with you, we have here now in the idea that there is a serpent and he speaks to the woman. To, to kind of put that together as we move forward, we have a otherwise a ministerial angel. Um, and maybe if you were in small groups this week, you, you, you worked through those. Um, I provided the answers simply because, um, not because they're the answers, but I provided the answers of small group sheets um, as they were kind of like helpful to you from my answers. Uh, and then hopefully you were able to interact with that material a little bit uh, through small group discussion and probe further and work through um, the idea of the fall of Satan. But where we pick up this morning and moving forward, I'm just going to assume with you and you with me that what we have at this point in the text is a, ministry, uh, is a ministering angelic being who has since fallen into rebellion by his sin of pride, looking at the man and his helper Eve. That, that, that's where I'm beginning with you now. Is, is, and, and again, if it's like, well, I think of it a little bit more like this and a little bit more like it's great. It, it, it works. We're just going to continue moving forward with this mindset that what we're looking at here and what unfolds in a ministering angelic being who has since fallen into rebellion by his sin of pride and looking at the man and his helper Eve. And in accordance, what we're going to see kind of um, develop here is in accordance with his own rejection of the program of God. That is, what, what was the, this servant being, this angelic being supposed to do in the service of God? He was to minister positively. He was to worship God himself. Um, and, and now he has rejected that program, his place in that program. And along with his own rejection of his place in the program of God, he wants Adam and Eve also to reject with him their place in the program of God. So now he has forfeited his role of authority, his role in the program of God. He appears now on the scene in Genesis 3. And what is his next move? What is his attempt? It's to get the woman and the man to join with him. Not that they might be two peas in one pod doing the same work. Because, see, and that's an interesting piece, right? Um, and, and, uh, Pastor Dan and I talked about that earlier this week, just the idea when you go to Revelation and you look at um, uh, the prophecies regarding the great uh, Babylon. And you look at, you remember, uh, we preached this years and years ago, but, the, but there's the ships off to sea, and they're carrying all of the cargo. And the people, if I recall the scene properly, I think it's somewhere in Revelation 18, they're on the shore. And all the ships that are carrying their investments are becoming obliterated. And, and, and they mourn over their loss. But they, they, they find out that, that Babylon is destroying itself. And with it, them. You, you see, so to be outside of Christ is... Not to have a different set of friends. 
it's to have another, it's to have an enemy who seeks to devour and destroy you. That's the idea. I, I know none of you listen to this music, and rightfully so, I imagine. But uh, back in the 80s, it was ACDC, uh, the Highway to Hell. It was like, yeah, you know. If any of you have ever heard it, you know, I'm on the way, and, and I'm fired up because I'm going to be there, and my friends are going to be there too. We're on the highway. It's like, it's just, that's not actually true. Not that any of you thought so, but just in case, you're like, well, maybe they are on the highway to hell, and it's a raucous jamming party. You'd be like, actually, it's not true. That's not the case. Being on the highway to hell is not this exuberant joyride that lands you where a place where I'm evil, you're evil, we're all evil together, and at least nobody's bagging on us about it. That, that's not actually true. He, he's not here to make alliances with you. He's not here. Demonic activity isn't here to, like, win you over and influence friends. It, it, it's here to seek your destruction. And so here as he appeals, he has already rebelled. He's out in the program of God. So he appeals to the man and the woman to destroy them. Not to form an alliance. And this is what our Lord means in John 8. And I don't have time to go there, but I cite for you John 8. Listen to the way Jesus describes these events. And we've covered it just briefly for a moment a few weeks ago. But just hear these words as they fall in light of what's taking place. As now he's entering into the serpent and this activity is about to take place here in Genesis 3. John 8, our Lord says, he, that is Satan, the fallen angel who now is called Satan. He was a murderer from the very beginning. From what beginning? This beginning. You see? It's not alliance building. It's the condemned seeking to destroy and create other people who are condemned. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he has nothing to do with the truth. Because there is no truth in him. Then he goes further, in, in John 8, he says this, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. That's what's within him. That, that's why he, when he speaks to you, you will not surely die. That, that, that's a lie. Where does it come from? It comes from within him. It belongs to him by character. He is a liar, our Lord says, 844. He is a liar. And indeed, the final comment of verse 44, he is the father of lies. He's an originator of falsehood. That is what we see here as he appeals to you and I through multiple mediums. And what he's doing here in a particular medium with Adam in Eve. In the medium that he appeals to them through here in Genesis 3, we know very well, and the medium is a serpent. Now, in verse 1, notice verse 1 very carefully. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, as we think of verse 1, in light of what's about to transpire, there's a couple of things that we need to think through here, and we just need to kind of parse them out well. There's a distinction that needs to be made between the serpent as the beast of the field, that is, a species, animal. There, we, need to, we need to think that through, okay? So, so we learn here that we're introduced through uh, uh, to the serpent as a, as a beast of the field. And he has particular characteristics as a beast of the field. He is particularly here described as crafty. 
and he's craftier than any other beast of the field. So there's some sort of intelligence that belongs to the serpent. And then we see a little bit later, and we see that he, the serpent, said to the woman. So what we need to do is we kind of need to separate out the idea that there is an actual serpent here that we need to deal with and how he's described. And then we need to consider what's taking place within or through the serpent that we also need to key in on. What do we think first as we kind of see this um, intermingling between this fallen angel and this beast of the field? Number one, the serpent is in some sense a crafty creature in and of itself. That is, before we read into crafty and we say, well, crafty has these tones of maliciousness and, 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 and wrongness and evil intent. Sure, sure. But before we get there, we do have to acknowledge there's an actual serpent, a beast of the field here. So when we think of the serpent alone, we are to see this natural craftiness that is described here by Moses. That right, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. We're thinking here in terms of the natural craftiness of the serpent as a species, as a virtue. That is, when we think of the serpent here, live, actual creatureliness in and of itself we'd be right to assume or or to deduce from this passage that the serpent was endowed by God with a more excellent knowledge than other creatures of the field. Isn't that what the text says? Otherwise, we're jumping right into the Satanism. of We're jumping right into the fallen angel, and we're jumping right into what he's up to. But recognize also he has a medium here through which he appeals to the woman, a serpent. And there's something belonging to the serpent in and of itself as a creature of the field. And the one thing we know about the serpent is that he's in some measures crafty. So in this sense, the craftiness of the serpent itself in comparison to other beasts of the field is some sense of being positively clever. there's There's something positively clever Right? And there's a distinction between being crafty and being clever, even though those things often kind of overlap. Uh, it depends. Is that, was that a clever thought? Was that a crafty thought? So, right, they're kind of belonging to one another, but yet they're not automatically wrong. There's a positive cleverness to the species of the serpent at this point of creation. There, there's just something endowed in this creature. And yet, at the same time, so we want to recognize that there is an actual historical serpent present. It's, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a, a fable, and, and, and it's not that the, the serpent is an imaginatory animal, and it's really just some sort of uh, manifestation of Satan in a form. There's an actual serpent there. And at the same time, while we acknowledge the presence of an actual, true, beast-of-the-field serpent who is, in some sense, positively clever in comparison to other beasts of the field, it's Satan's use of the serpent that we must pay careful attention to. You see, it's his use of the serpent that violates this natural giftedness. Do you see? That is so important. 
that we grasp this from the text. Much lies outside of it, right? Much lies within the mysterious realm. And we push as far as we can, even as we've done for the last three weeks or so, to kind of understand the fall and evil and the lies and how it came about and the rebellion and when. So there's much that lies within this realm of mysterious, uh, mysteriousness that we can't grasp. But there are certain aspects, important aspects, that we easily can grasp and yet at the same time can easily look past. Hear, hear how I, I'm setting this up. Think on this for a moment. This is what's so dastardly. Satan's use of the serpent. Serpent, noble creature, somehow maintains the sense of creaturely excellence of knowledge, more crafty than his neighbor, goodness. And it's Satan's use of that serpent, which violates this natural giftedness and turns it into a wicked perversion. And so here, in Genesis 3, verse 1, immediately we're introduced to Satan's preferred method for destroying men and women. Not like what he did then, but what he does now. What he did then, what he does now, what he's done all the way in between. His preferred method of destroying your life is to take what appeals and to take what is naturally good and gifted and pervert it with distortion and wickedness. So you're consumed by what was at one moment good and now is destroying your life. I'll elaborate just a little bit. Think with me on this. You, you see, his preferred method of killing and destroying, Adam and Eve here, and you in your life, his attempts at killing and destroying is to expend all of his energy to pervert the good and turn it into evil. Let me just give you a, a couple examples, brief examples. You, you'll think about way more of them than I will. But if I could just give you a few examples in your life, maybe some, maybe some points where you need to examine, you need to think through, right? Because it, it, very little influence would come to you if, if he stood overtly, out explicit, and just said um, something uh, of a wicked manifestation. How much influence would that direct evil, how much influence would that have over you? Probably very little. You'd see it and probably be disgusted by it or somehow, even at, a, at an unbelieving mindset. A sense of morality and conscience within you through natural law would cause you to be repulsed by many of his appeals if they are directly overtly evil. But if he takes what is good and subtly changes it into something evil, how much influence would it have? I'll give you a couple of examples. Number one, think of it like this. Industry and providing. 
right? So it appeals to the natural inclinations of a man, at least a man and a woman together, in, in building a home together, a sense of industry and provision. That is, going to work, getting up in the morning, trying to earn a living in order to care for a family. Right? It's, nat- it's good. It's right. Industry and providing becomes self-seeking, self-elevation, self-enrichment. I now go to work to make more of me. Do you see how there's a, subtly, there's a subtle but deadly difference in the two? One is a work-positive cultivating aspect of industry, and one is uh, often uh, manifests itself in uh, being a workaholic. Think about another one that appeals to the flesh, this idea of neatness or orderliness, maybe cleanliness in one's life. You have all kind of your, maybe we'd say something like ducks in a row. You are very orderly and, 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 and scheduled and, 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 and uh, kind of uh, neat person. Think how subtly that becomes pride of place. Conceit. Maybe it manifests itself in know-it-all-ism. I know no one in here knows anyone like that. Do you see, it's, it's the, this is what he, he appeals in this noble creature. And in this sense, we see a stroke that is here for all of time to take what is naturally good and distort it, turning it into something wrong and evil and destructive. Think about one more just for a moment. Maybe some of us uh, think long on this, the idea of liberty in one's life, particularly liberty as a Christian. A freedom that's won for us in the cross of Christ. A way to live with brothers and sisters within the church. The idea of liberty, of conscience. Something worth preserving. Something worth growing in and enjoying. How quickly does it become drunkenness in the category of alcohol? Immorality in the context of relationships. And numerous forms of self-indulgence in the name of liberty and freedom. Anything else is legalism, right? Satanic influence expends all energy in perverting the good and turning it into the evil. This is why we see the nobility of the creature. And it's Satan's use and exploitation of that virtue that is so deadly and destructive to Eve and to Adam. There are three, I want to kind of highlight in our time together, there's three historical. So I want to I note them, if you're jotting these down, to meditate on these thoughts with me. There's three historical, and I root them here in Genesis. So I'm saying three things that historically occurred in Genesis 3, and yet ongoing tactics that Satan uses in destroying men and women. There are three historical and ongoing tactics that Satan uses um, in the destruction of men and women. 
The first I want to look at, verses 1 through 7, the first historic, what occurred here in the text, but it's an ongoing tactic. And I want you to be wise to it, to look at it and say, this is ongoing tactic. I can see the appeals in my own life. I need to be mindful and prayerful as I consider these things in my life. Number one, he uses extraordinary means to disorient and confuse. This is something, again, not that he just did here, and he did it, and it worked, and it ended. What I'm trying to persuade you toward is that he did it here because it is effective. And he keeps doing it now because it maintains effectiveness upon men and women. Number one, he uses extraordinary means to disorient and confuse Where do we see that in the passage? Well, think of it from this broader kind of perspective with the entire scene. We have no reason to believe that at creation, and Adam was here stewarding over animals, that he was in great conversation with them. We have no reason to assume that or imply that from the passages. That, 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 that every time that he was like, you know, I, I could really, you know, I really love this conversation I have with giraffes. They're very thoughtful, very contemplative. They ask me all kinds of insightful, probing questions. These guys over here, not so much. They don't ask me so much. I'm not that into them. They into me. But I really enjoy my long walks with the... the, the, We have no reason to imply that or assume that is going on here in the garden context as he exercises lordship over the creation. So what then do we have right here breaking out between Eve and a serpent? An extraordinary event. You see, the speaking serpent, that is just, in, in so far we know he is only something better than or more crafty than the other beasts of the field, but he belongs to the other beasts of the field. He's a beast, not a human being. And there's a great distinction there, right? We have no reason to believe that he's like a human. He's not. He's a beast of the field. And yet here he speaks audibly to Eve. And it lends itself for us to believe she is seemingly captivated and intrigued by it. And thereby becomes, and I'm saying thereby, the sense that she is captivated and intrigued by this extraordinary moment. And it is by this sense of extraordinary means that Eve becomes susceptible to the content coming out of the serpent altogether. It's an extraordinary moment. Just for a sense uh, um, of kind of contextualizing our thoughts about this passage as believers, um, Bill Maher, uh, the late night hater of all things religious, um, was interviewing Ross Duthat. And I don't know if you follow him or, or any. He, he's a writer on, on politics and religion, kind of Roman Catholicism for the New York Times. And he wrote recently a book called Bad Religion. And he, Ross Duthat is bemoaning the fact that, uh, that there's been an erosion in organized religion in America. He, he's a Roman Catholic himself and um, wishes there to be a seismic shift in confidence in uh, organized religion. 
So he showed up on Bill Maher, and, and they were discussing Ross's book. And, and, and in describing uh, what's believable about the Bible, what's unbelievable about the Bible, of course, Bill Maher saying absolutely nothing. But it was interesting in his remarks. It, it, Maher's point is it's either all got to be admitted to be true or, or none of it is. He, he just rejects any sense for Christians to be able to go piecemeal through the Bible. Uh, insightful, right? Makes sense. Fair. But he goes on to say this, quote, how can otherwise intelligent people believe in a talking snake? But you see, if you think about that just for a moment, it's really not hard at all. This is not a point of embarrassment or exposure for the Christian faith. It's not hard to believe this at all. To anyone that believes in any sense of the miraculous or any sense of of the supernatural. And how many people do you think do? Everyone. It's not that hard at all. And that is what we have right here. Indeed, an extraordinary moment. Something that we wouldn't say happens every day. But why is that outside the realm of intelligence to embrace? Just because it didn't happened in a test tube on a lens that we can slide underneath it didn't occur it's not real very few if any are bound by that including Bill Maher but so here we have this woman who indeed is engaging in a speaking serpent and I want to warn you as I said these are these are tactics ongoing tactics that Satan continues to use what is otherwise unusual or even extraordinary to drive people away from the truth. Again, recently there was an individual talking about uh, seeing a white light. And that white light so changed their life that they're off onto this other track. These other elements that you say, oh, you know, I don't know about going to heaven, come back. I don't know about the whole idea about, uh, you know, seeing dead people or all all these different things that people claim. Like, this happened and it changed my life completely. On and on and on they go. And we'd sit back and and very skeptically kind of look at those things and be like, eh, maybe not. Not sure. I can't prove, disprove. What's going on in all of it? Have you ever sat back to think, what's going on? Satan continues to use what is otherwise unusual in a human being's life or even extraordinary events in a human being's life, whether alone or with others, to drive them away from the truth. And this is what he's doing here with Eve. This is why Paul says to you and I in Ephesians 6.11, if we go from Genesis out into Ephesians, as the Apostle Paul speaks to you and I, he says this to each of us, put on the whole armor of God. Put it on. All right? And he goes down to describe piecemeal approach. This piece, this piece, this piece, this piece. And be ready. Pull on the whole armor belonging to God. Put it on. Why? Because you must be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Do you see? Schemes of the devil. He works in unusual manners. Finely crafted arguments. Extraordinary events. He is scheming 
against men and women. So we would say he still possesses, and we need to be mindful that Satan still possesses a dangerous level of liberty against which we, you and I, must be on guard. That's what Paul is saying. Calvin makes this comment, and we'll move to number two. Think on this with me just a moment. Uh, Calvin makes the same argument, that, 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 that it's, this is how he normally works. This is how he does it. And, and that's why we must be on guard to think clearly. He says this, quote, Satan does the same thing, meaning what he's doing with the serpent, a creature of nobility, to possess and then to be able to turn what is naturally good to it into something that is evil. Satan does the same thing with places and personal situations, depending on wherever God has placed his blessing and favor, right? So, so there's a good gift in your life. Satan seeks to twist it, and maybe not particularly Satan himself, but, but demonic influence, sinful, drawing upon your own flesh. Where there is a blessing and a favor, and this is Calvin's comment, he says, he knew the serpent would be more useful than any other animal for seducing the woman and to draw her husband into the same confusion. That's why you get Moses' comment. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast. Great tool to deceive with. Liberty in the lives of Christians. Great tool to get a foothold with. The second point I want to draw your attention to, the thoughts of three historical and ongoing tactics that Satan uses to destroy and deceive and hurt the lives of men and women. Number two, he distorts what is actual and true. He distorts actual truth. And, and it's like what we're reading in Genesis 3 is, is the very first conspiracy, very first YouTube conspiracy. Right? So, you, you know, they're, they're, everyone's got one. And, and here is the very first one, the genesis of conspiracy. Where, as you listen to, to wild conspiracies that are out there, there are all kinds of them in the constellation of conspiracies. They always have just enough truth in them to become conspiracies, right? Just enough to make somebody who would otherwise not go down that train of thought, once that kind of little bit of truth lays hold of them, they're like, well, then it necessarily follows that all of that is true. Right? This idea, this is how conspiracies work, con to contain just enough truth to get a hook in your mind, to change your thought process, to move you down the path of destruction. Notice how he does so with the conspiracy here in the text. Look at Genesis 3, 1. Again, he said to the woman, notice what he says. He's going to appeal to this sense of conspiracy. He distorts what is actual and true. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Think about Eve just for a moment. Wow, that had to be an extraordinary moment. A serpent begins speaking to her. So you can see her being drawn in. Have you ever seen the Jungle Book, the cartoon? There's like that snake that hangs down, and he's like got those eyes that are like spinning. And he's like drawing you in. Kind of like that, that, that cartoonish picture of what's going on here. And the, the idea is like, this animal is speaking to me. And it's extraordinary to my senses. 
it, 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 it's compelling. I, I'm, I'm being drawn into this. Maybe I don't think his eyes were spinning, just for the sake of argument. But the idea that a creature begins to speak, and he said to the woman, now, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, remember, when she hears this, listen to the language that she should have already had in her mind. Because, again, every conspiracy contains just enough truth to be effective. Look at what he did say. Jump up in verse 16 of chapter 2. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may. Did God say you shall not? Wait a minute, I'm getting confused. I'm getting confused. What did he say? Did he tell me no? Did he tell me yes? Going back to the original word, you may, surely, absolutely, you may eat, absolutely, of every. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any? You may eat of every. Did he say to you, you may not eat of any tree in the garden? You see, he takes what God has said to you. You may eat of every tree. And he distorts it. Speaking of trees to trees, so it has context. But it has force. We're moving from what God has given. He restricts it. This is what God has withhold. He distorts it from you may eat of every into you may not eat of any. Do you see what the actual distortion of the words? So if you mix, scramble the words, you may do all of this. Did he say you may not do any of that? If you unscramble the words, what is actually transpiring in the serpent as Satan appeals to the woman? What is he seeking to do? What does he seek to do? As I say, devices that he continues to do now to you, to me, in this age. What does he continue to do? The real distortion is this. So behind the package, we got the words unscrambled. And we're peering behind the package now of whatever package appeals to you at the moment. Look behind it see what's going on. Satan is seeking to reshape and repackage who God is to you through the distorting of his very word. That's the distortion. To reshape and repackage to Eve who God has revealed himself to be to her. You see, he wants Adam and Eve. He wants you and I to perceive God differently at a fundamental level. To perceive him differently at a fundamental level against what he has revealed himself to us to be. You see, in this, in this little stroke, listen to the words. So, so did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Listen to the appeal to Eve as she stands there and hears this. God has moved from the generous father in her life to the great forbidder. You see, that's the distortion through the language. 
He doesn't let you have anything, does he? Oh, yeah, he's given us all the trees. Didn't he, did he really say you can't eat any of the trees? Okay, I'm getting confused. Yeah, don't you think of him as uh, withholding much? Very greedy, miserly. I mean, look at the beauty all around you. Look at the people's lives all around yours. They're so much better. I mean, just get on the Internet. You'll find out all your 10,000 friends are, have way better lives than yours. Isn't he a great forbidder in your life? He's not the generous father that he's purported himself to be. Look at your life. To Eve, look at the garden. And you can't eat any of this, can you? You see, this is how he tactically works in the lives of men and women, in the lives of, uh, uh, in, in your life and in mine. He wants us to repackage and reshape in our minds who God is to us based on circumstance rather than his word. God indeed is a generous father. And he was to Adam and Eve. He was not a great forbidder, and he isn't in your life either. So just to be clear here, and we'll conclude with number three, Satan takes what is true. And in this case, there was a righteous prohibition. Look at, look at the right prohibition. So this is true, and this is a conspiracy. You may surely eat of every tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So he, so, so he takes what is true, that is a righteous prohibition in your life, something that uh, will bring you destruction, will bring you harm. And it's good that God is withholding it from you. It's good that you're not participating in this. This is a righteous prohibition for your life. And Satan seeks to distort it in your life as a miserly restricting from a great forbidding God who wants to deny you happiness. And so with Satan, the great conspiracy here to Eve, a single righteous no becomes an absolute total no. Finally, the third um, uh, historic but ongoing work of Satan and seeking to destroy the lives of men and women. What does he do? What did he do here in the text? And the third and final one is he lies about the consequences of sin. He lies about the consequences of sin. This is what he does in his appeal Look at verses 4 through 7. Um, but the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now just look over at verse 17 that we just read. Notice what it says. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Here is the serpent. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows. I'll tell you what he hasn't told you. I'll disclose to you what's good for your life apart from God. Remember, he's miserly. He withholds all that's good for you. That's why your life is so miserable. 
how deadly those lies can be. For God knows, this is what he really knows, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil on your own. You don't need him anymore. This is what he knows. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Do you see that? Do you see what's happening in verse 5 and verse 6? You're going to know what's good for yourself. All you got to do is disregard God. And here's the step in verse 6. You'll know. Your eyes will show you. Verse 6, her eyes showed her. The tree was good for food. Do you see what's happening? His lie and deceit is having it. So when the woman saw with her own eyes that it was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes and the tree was to be desired to make her wise, she took of its fruit and she ate it. She gave some to Adam who was standing nearby. He ate of it. The eyes of both of them indeed were opened. But what they came to know wasn't what they expected. It was shocking. They knew that they were naked. In response to this newfound knowledge was to sew some fig leaves together and make some proper loincloths. You see, he lies to you and myself. He lies to men and women about the consequences of your sin. He appears to set you free by minimizing the threat. I shouldn't be doing this. This is withheld from me. No, it, it shouldn't be withheld from you in the first place. It's your right to indulge. I think it, for me, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring dullness to my spiritual life. It's going to have an effect on me and my wife. It's going to have an effect on me with my children. It's going to have an effect on me as a friend. It's going to have an effect on me as a worshiper. It's going to have an effect. No, you will not so surely feel an effect. No, 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 no. Well, that is true. It's a very strong desire that I have to indulge. It's a very strong thing. And where did that desire come from? And, and again, if I look to the left and I look to my right, it seems like this is fine. All boats are floating. I, I ought to be just fine to indulge. Yes. Yes. He works to minimize the threat. It's no big deal. And then he promises you pleasure and profit in its place. Not only will you not die, you'll be like God. Not only will this not dull your spiritual senses and bring you discontent, sadness, and sorrow, it will take you to new heights of joy and fulfillment that you never thought possible. You see, in conclusion, here in Genesis 3, 1 through 7, we see the great tactic of Satan for all time. That is, to present the bait, the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit while hiding the hook, the shame, 
wrath and the loss that rebellion against God and his will in your life will certainly bring. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear, minds to receive, hearts to rejoice over the truth of your word. Help us in our confusing times, in our relationships. Help us to make wise decisions. In our freedoms, be with us and aid and give wisdom of applications. Be with us in our natural-born desires and God-gifted desires for you to be industrious. Help us to not be self-seeking, self-glorifying. Help us with all of this as we are sought day and night by spiritual device to undo your great work within our lives. Help us to pursue you and thank you for this Lord's Day where we can be resalinized as salt. We can be strengthened yet again. Be honored. Thank you for meeting with us through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.